Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that's provided for you there in one of the chairs, you'll find our passage on page 962. 962. First Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 50 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your help, and so, Father, we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would give us strength that we don't have, that you would give us insight and wisdom that we lack, and Lord, we pray that we would know and understand your Word, and that we would be captured by it. Father, fill us with the hope of the resurrection. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, this is actually our fifth and final sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we've been in this chapter for a while. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. Now, why do you think, this is a pretty long chapter, almost 60 verses. Why do you think that Paul spends so much time talking about the resurrection? Why have we as a church spent five weeks focused on the resurrection. Why is this topic so important? Well, one of the reasons why this topic of the resurrection is so important is because all of us have a lot of death in our future. You will know people, many of you already know people, who have passed away from this world into the next And for all of us, if the Lord tarries, if Jesus does not come back beforehand, we will face our own death. We will die. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's teaching on the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is instructing us on how to think about death. How to think about death and how to relate to death. How death 
how, how we think about death, how it impacts our present life and how it will impact our future. And so I've entitled this message, Death is Swallowed Up in Victory. And because that's true, because death is swallowed up in victory, we see in our text this morning that for those who are trusting in Jesus, our future will be victorious and our present is significant. Those are the two points I want us to see this morning. Because death has been swallowed up in victory, our future will be victorious. That's the first point. And secondly, our present is significant. Let's look at the first point. Our future will be victorious. This is found in verses 50 to 57, which takes up most of the passage there. And as we think about these verses here and what Paul has to say about death, we recognize that today there are at least a couple different approaches to death. There's probably more than this, but there's a couple different approaches that people take towards death. One is to deny death, and the other is to befriend death. So on the one hand, you have some people who seek to deny death. Uh, you know, death kind of creeps people out. They're afraid of it. And so uh, the way that they approach death, and maybe you find yourself in this situation this morning, the way they approach death is just try not to think about it. Don't talk about it. Just deny it. Avoid it as much as possible. And in fact, this is something that increasingly we are more able to do. We're not forced to think about death today as much as we used to be. It's one of the benefits of living in an affluent society. You know, until the 20th century, most children died before the age of 10. Almost everyone died uh, at their home with family and friends around. And so even growing up, people saw death and witnessed death. And now everyone, children and adults, are living much longer. Life expectancy has increased dramatically. And, and we can praise God for that. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, but then even when people do pass from this life into the next, when they die, oftentimes it's not in a home, but it's at a hospital. And so in some ways it might feel more distant, not quite as personal. And so given the circumstances that we find ourselves in, people are increasingly able to kind of distance themselves from death. And because death kind of creeps them out because it makes them afraid, they just decide, well, I just won't really think about it much and I won't talk about it much. And maybe you're here this morning and that's kind of your relationship to death. You just don't really like to think about it. You don't like to talk about it. You'd rather deny it. There's another approach to death, and that is to befriend death. There's actually a movement that is known as the death is natural movement. And, and this movement basically teaches that death is kind of like a peaceful cessation. That's how we should think of death. Or death is like a sleepless dream. And it seems that the way that this movement was birthed, the way it got going, was that uh, psychologists were meeting with their clients and their clients were sharing with them, you know, I'm afraid of death. I don't know how to relate to death. I think about my death a lot and I don't know what to do with it and it just scares me. And so they were trying to come up with some solution. How can we bring these people comfort? And, and they couldn't go to religion, right? That, that's Surely there's, we can't go there, so there must be some kind of natural explanation or some other way that we can comfort people and encourage them. And so they came up with this idea 
that death is like a peaceful cessation, that death is like a sleepless dream. And, they, you know, think about death that way and you'll be encouraged and you won't be afraid as much. You know the remarkable thing about that? You know the irony in all that? They are saying they don't want to resolve this problem by appealing to religion or appealing to the Bible, but that is a religion, right? There's no scientific evidence that death results in peaceful cessation. There's no scientific evidence that death is a sleepless dream. These are all statements of faith. And they are statements of faith that have no basis. They're only grounded in wishful thinking. When opposition to taking the approach of denying death or befriending death, the Bible takes a a very different approach. The Bible says, first of all, that we should not deny death. In fact, the Bible is very honest about death. In fact, the Bible speaks so much about death that it makes a lot of people feel really uncomfortable. The Bible does not deny death. And instead of befriending death, the Bible teaches us that death is not natural. That death is not a part of the normal life cycle. That in fact, when God created the world, when he created Adam and Eve, that there was no death. There was only life. Ongoing, constant life in the presence and fellowship of God. Of course, that life was broken when Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled against God, and death entered into the world. But as a result, the Bible says, death is not your friend. Death is your enemy. Death robs us of family, and it robs us of friends. It robs us of our dreams and our aspirations, and therefore it is not to be embraced as a friend. That's why we genuinely grieve when we lose someone. That's why our hearts are broken, because death is an enemy. And so the Bible says, and this is what Paul says in these verses here, death is not to be denied, death is not to be befriended, rather death is an enemy to be defeated. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. God has defeated death. Notice the language that Paul uses here to describe this defeat of death. You notice there in verse 54 of our passage, Paul says in the latter part of verse 54, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. I love that language that he uses there. It's swallowed up in victory. You think about a snake that is on the attack or a lion that pounces. You know, once the snake swallows its prey, or once the lion gulps down its kill, the victory is final, right? There's no going back. And what Paul is saying here is death has been completely swallowed up in victory. Not only that, but he uses another image there in verses 54 and 55. He goes on, he says, death is swallowed up in victory, verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so what Paul is saying here is not only has death been swallowed up in victory, but the sting of death has been removed. Now, how does that happen? How has the sting of death been removed? Uh, Beasley Murray, who is a, a New Testament commentator, he writes this. Listen to these words. He says, quote, This sting is not some mild irritant 
but is like a scorpion's sting that results in death. Christ has drawn out the poison, however, by drawing it out, as it were, into Himself. What what, what He's saying here is that at the cross, what Jesus did was He took the venom of death and He drew it out into Himself and bore our death in our place so that we might live. You see, sin is the cause of death. When, when sin, the venom of sin, gets into your bloodstream, death follows. And so what Jesus was doing at the cross was He was drawing out the venom. He was drawing out the venom of Uh, and the poison of death, and He took it in His body. He bore our sin. He took our death so that we might be freed and we might live. Therefore, death has been defeated. And as a result, we do not have to be afraid of death. Do you see how Paul wants that to be conveyed to the Corinthians here? He wants it, he, he communicates that in the fact that he mocks death right? He taunts death. That's what he's doing when he says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so what the Bible says is that that death is not to be denied. We shouldn't just ignore it as though it's not a reality. Nor should we befriend it or act like it's a normal part of the life process. Rather, we should understand it to be an enemy, but an enemy that has been defeated through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. That's, in fact, the essence and the spirit of Paul's words here. You notice that that word victory appears here over and over again. In fact, the word victory that is used in these verses that I've just read for you, the word victory that's used here is actually the word nikos. Does that sound familiar? Nikos. It's the Greek word that is the basis for the name of the popular sports apparel, Nike. And that word is only used three times in Paul's writing, and all three times it's used here. Death is swallowed up in victory, in Nikos. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that God in Christ has won a victory, a nikos of cosmic and eternal proportions. He has defeated death once and for all. Now, when and how will this victory that we will experience in the future, when and how will it flesh out, will it play out? And Paul gives us the answers for that for that in the uh, previous verses, in verses 50 to 53. Notice in verse 50, Paul makes the point here that our present bodies are not suited for the world to come. Now, we talked about this a good bit last week, but he makes this point again in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So our bodies that are broken, that are decaying, that are falling apart, they cannot, they are not suited for a world that will last forever. They are not able to take on the new creation and the kingdom of God in which they will be expected to exist without end. 
And so a change must take place. And Paul goes on to say in verses 51 to 52 that this change will happen when Jesus returns. Notice verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So first of all, he says there that we will not all sleep. What Paul means is when Christ returns, there will be some people who are still alive that have not yet died. And what will happen to them? Paul says they will be changed. They will be given a new body, a resurrected body, a body that will last forever. But this is not only true of the living, it's also true of the dead. You see further down in verse 52, Paul says, And the dead will be raised, imperishable, and shall all, and we shall all be changed. So listen, and this, this is coinciding with uh, what Robbie read this morning for us as well in 1 Thessalonians. This is, this is what happens when someone dies. What happens is that their soul goes to be with the Lord. They are, as the Bible says, at home with the Lord. They are in the presence of God. But when Jesus returns, then that individual and those people who have died in the Lord experience full and complete redemption. So that not only are our souls redeemed, but our bodies are redeemed as well. The living when Jesus returns will be changed, and the dead, in particular their bodies, will be raised and united with their souls, and we will experience full redemption in new resurrected bodies that are fitted for the new creation and the kingdom of God. Paul says as well that this will happen in a moment. You see it there in verse 52. He says, in a moment. Actually, the word there for moment is the word atom. And in Paul's day, this was understood to be the smallest particle that could not be divided. So the idea here is in a moment that cannot be divided. It's the smallest moment you could imagine. In the twinkling of an eye, literally before an eye can blink at the last trumpet, which is clearly a reference to the return of Jesus. He says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye, we will experience full redemption. And in that moment, we will sing with joy, and we will dance on the grave of death. Our future will be victorious because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The second point that Paul makes, though, is death has been swallowed up in victory, therefore our future is victorious. The second point is death has been swallowed up in victory, therefore our present is significant. Look there in verse 58 and we read these words. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, notice the the therefore in verse 58. That ties what Paul is about to say with everything else that he said in this chapter previously. Okay, so all all that he said about the resurrection previously is now the basis upon which he gives them this admonition, this instruction in verse 58. 
He says, listen, because death has been defeated, because we will be raised and given new bodies, because we will experience full redemption, because we will live eternally in the presence of God, therefore your present life and work has meaning and significance. It counts for something. And he says, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable. It's interesting because now Paul really, if you look at chapter 15 as a whole, now Paul has come full circle. Because if you go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul began chapter 15 with these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, it is possible, he starts by saying in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, that it is possible that they would forsake this most fundamental and critical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says this is of the first importance, this is of utmost importance, and you must hold fast to this truth. And then he concludes the chapter as he's unpacked the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications for the Christian's life by saying, be steadfast, be immovable in your convictions regarding this truth. Don't trade it for the latest trend or the cheapest substitute. You know, the Christian Post ran a story in April of this year that indicated that in Britain, 25% of those who identify as Christians, do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Consequently, one-third of that same group of people who identify as Christians in Britain do not believe in life after death. Now, we have seen clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul would say, then therefore you are not a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. But this is a reminder to us of why it is so critical that we as the Christian church return again and again and again to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we might be grounded and rooted in this absolutely critical reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It is the cornerstone of our faith. And Paul says, in this, be steadfast and immovable. But then he goes on and says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's interesting because that word abound is the same word that he used back in chapter 14, verse 12, when he was calling the Corinthians to give themselves to the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. So back in chapter 14, verse 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel, strive to abound in the building up of the church. Paul says, I always want you to abound. I always want you to excel in the work of the Lord, in the building up of Christ's church. You know, the reality is, as Christians as we seek to honor the Lord in our own personal lives and our families, as we seek to honor the Lord by building up Christ's church and being on mission for Him, it is easy for us to become discouraged. You know, you think about your own personal life and as you're seeking the Lord in the Word and in prayer and you may be reading and you may be 
saying to yourself, man, there's just so many things here I don't understand or I'm praying and I don't really feel anything. Or maybe as your Christian parents, a Christian father, a Christian mother, and you're seeking to raise your children, and, and, and moms, you feel like, man, your, your whole life is spent wiping bottoms and breaking up fights. And fathers, you're teaching your children and you're, you're reading the Bible with them, but there doesn't seem to be any change in their lives. And you're giving yourself to, to attend regularly, faithfully, maybe on Sundays, and you're here for gathered worship. But man, work is so hard, and you're so tired, and it's just easy to kind of sleep in. And you're giving yourself to ministry. Maybe you're doing outreach in the community, or you're volunteering here on Sunday mornings, and, and you say, man, I just I don't see the fruit that I want to see, or maybe there's not enough volunteers, maybe there's not enough resources. Why aren't other people giving themselves to this work? Maybe you're reaching out to your friends at work. Maybe you're praying for lost people in your neighborhood. Maybe you're trying to build that bridge over and over and over again, and it just doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere, and the temptation is to throw in the towel, right? And Paul says, no, 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 persevere. Maybe there's some changes that need to be made. Maybe you need to seek some godly counsel. Maybe you need to pray about through some of these things more. But do not throw in the towel. Persevere. Your work is not in vain. And why is it not in vain? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so everything you do in this life counts for eternity. Everything you do, in the, it won't be like it happens in a moment and then it goes away. Whatever you do in this life has implications for eons to come because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. As one translation translates Paul's words here, nothing you ever do for him is ever lost or wasted. Isn't that glorious? Nothing you ever do for Jesus will be lost or wasted. The resurrected Christ sees it and he will honor you for all eternity. My friends, this truth is so precious that I fear that we take it for granted too often. You know, philosophers like Nietzsche and Freud and others denied the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, and they rejected the idea of the supernatural. And they therefore rightly concluded, if that is true, that there is no supernatural, there is no resurrection of the dead, that Jesus was not the Savior of the world. They concluded, therefore, life has no meaning, no purpose, no significance. Years ago, Pearl Jam wrote a song entitled Meaningless. Let me read you a few lines here. I refuse, I refuse to believe we're meaningless, meaningless, we're meaningless. I refuse, I won't give up, yeah, meaningless. We're not meaningless, we're not invisible, we're not meaningless. You just get the sense there that as he's writing that song, that the, the author of that song is just groping for meaning. If you, you know, if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably always assumed, this is such an amazing blessing. You have always assumed 
that there is meaning and purpose in life. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why you have that assumption. You take the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the mix, and this is where you are. You're groping for meaning, groping for purpose, groping for significance. And even in that song, as you hear the author just longing for it, I don't want to be invisible in a universe that expands for eons. I don't want to just be a blip on the screen that nobody ever remembers. It's just here in a moment and gone like a dust particle that's blown away. And he longs for it, but he has nothing to ground it in. Why? He has no basis upon which to believe that he has any purpose or meaning or significance. Paul tells a very different story, doesn't he? Paul tells us that instead of us just being a piece of dust that is blown off the the stage of human history, that we were created in the image of God. That we have inherent value and purpose. That we are loved and that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and that He was raised to give us eternal life so that everything we do in this life has meaning and significance because it will ripple throughout all eternity. And if we are Christians, it will ripple throughout all eternity for the glory of God. As we close, I think Jonathan Edwards, who's a Christian pastor in the 18th century, tied these two truths together very well. Death is swallowed up in victory, therefore our future is victorious, and our present has meaning and significance. Jonathan Edwards, he was probably 17, 18 years old when he wrote this. He wrote, quote, I am resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of, end of quote. That's a good life mission. That I I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I believe I will be raised and I have eternal eternity waiting before me. Therefore, in the present, I will live with such vigor, with such zeal, with such direction, with such purpose, that in that day I might experience the most joy I possibly could. If you live your life like that, it'll be full. It'll be full. And when you die, you can die rejoicing. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? We've been set free, delivered from death by the power of Jesus Christ and His resurrection.